Talking history. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Egan. In tonight's show, we're taking an in-depth look at the history of the CIA and we'll be investigating its role during the Cold War, 9-11 and its aftermath, and whether it was to blame for the false claims about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Later in the show, we'll be discussing the history of the HIV AIDS epidemic and how Ireland and other countries in Europe responded and this year of course marks the 40th anniversary of the first AIDS case diagnosed in Ireland. We'd love if you could email us your thoughts and views talkinghistory at newstalk.com Last week we took a new look at Peg and discovered there was much more to her life than the version studied at school for so long and if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows just go to the Newstalk app powered by GoLoud. We begin tonight's show with the history of the CIA. In September this year, the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency, will be marking the 75th anniversary of its founding, an organisation recently praised by President Biden for providing the bedrock of American security. But there have been many criticisms of the CIA over those 75 years, and to explore its history, including its successes and failures, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Rodri Jeffries-Jones, Emeritus Professor of American History and Honorary Fellow at the University of Edinburgh, and the author of a brilliant new book just published, A Question of Standing, The History of the CIA, published in hardback by Oxford University Press. Rodri, you're very welcome to the show. Hello, Patrick. Can we begin with this, uh, something you mentioned at the start of one of the chapters, that the CIA was the world's first democratically sanctioned secret service. That really surprised me. Uh, Well, it may come as a uh, surprise, but uh, it is in fact the case. Uh, In fact, um, if you make the comparison with the uh, British secret services, uh, not only were they not approved by Parliament, but they officially did not exist And until recent times, nobody knew, for example, the names of the directors of those institutions. And if you look at other countries, well, I have been unable to find an example of a democratically approved intelligence agency in any country, not just in the totalitarian countries, but um, even in countries like Scandinavia, which has uh, a tradition of open politics. So let's go back to 1947 then. It's a crucial year in the history of the Cold War. You have things like the Truman Doctrine. I wonder why was the CIA founded and how important were those earlier precedents in America, uh, organisations like the OSS during the Second World War? How important were they? And then why was the decision taken to found the CIA in 1947? Well, a lot of people uh, emphasise the role of the OSS, who was um, directed, which was directed uh, incidentally by William J. Donovan, who was of uh, Irish descent and had Fenian connections in his family. But he was one of these people who crossed the Rubicon and became a member of the American establishment. He was a very colourful character. And he 
set up the Office of Strategic Services in World War II to perform an intelligence function. But really his major triumph was in terms of public relations and trying to persuade people that America needed the kind of uh, daring-do covert operational outfit. Because in reality, the output of the OSS in intelligence terms was not all that serious. And I think a more important precedent was an organization which very appropriately uh, almost uh, nobody has heard of, and it's called U-1, which operated in the First World War in America and was called U because it was run by the Undersecretary of State. That was a purely intelligence organization which centralized intelligence from various different parts of the government and really was quite a good president for the CIA. Now, why was the CIA established? I think if we look at the debates immediately preceding the foundation of the CIA in 1947, we see two distinct trains of reasoning. One of them was very evident in the congressional hearings, and that is a determination to avoid a repetition of the surprise attack at Pearl Harbor, which in 1941 brought the United States into the war. You won't find in those congressional debates any reference to the Soviet Union or to the Cold War. But if you look at President Truman, his prime motive for sanctioning the setting up of an organization like the CIA was that he feared the international encroachments of the Soviet Union and the expansion of worldwide uh, communism. And that's, that was the reason he supported the new intelligence organization. So let's talk then about its role during the Cold War. And maybe let's jump to the Bay of Pigs invasion and that disaster in 1961, because it's interesting. The CIA was blamed for the failure, but as your book shows, it also was responsible for maybe uh, taking some success from it. Well, I think um, the uh, Bay of Pigs episode could be regarded as the end of a string of covert operations. The CIA had helped to overthrow the the democratically elected governments in Iran and Guatemala in 1953 and 1954, respectively. And uh, they expected a repeat show in Cuba in 1961. Um, I think it is worth uh, pointing out, though, that these covert operations are authorized by by the White House. The decisions are not made by the director of the CIA. And the CIA, in fact, had uh, come up with estimates of opinion in Cuba. And opinion in Cuba was very strongly in favor of Fidel Castro, who was, of course, denounced by the Americans as anti-democratic and and a communist. And had um, President uh, Kennedy and his advisors listened more carefully to that advice by the CIA's analysts, they might not have decided not to go ahead with that disastrous operation. And that, of course, leads then into the planning and the, the gradual involvement of the United States in Vietnam. And how, how significant was the role of the CIA in that? Because, again, you have assassinations, you have coups, you have actions that you know, would very much go against uh, what would be acceptable in the international rule of law. Well, I think uh, the answer to that is that the CIA is uh, a broad church with different strains of uh, opinion. The CIA uh, could not be said to have been 
in favor of the Vietnam War. And uh, to the extent that it was involved, uh, the people responsible for covert operations wanted American involvement to be very discreet and to place the um, initiative in the hands of the indigenous people of Vietnam. And we were very much opposed when America sent in ground troops and resorted to wide-scale bombing, which they thought would be counterproductive if you're trying to win over the, the uh, hearts and minds of local people. It's not a great idea to, to bomb them indiscriminately. So where the CIA was concerned, there was a great deal of doubt about the wisdom of going into Vietnam. And also there were questions about the way in which the war was uh, conducted. There was also a discrepancy, as, as, as we see in the debates after the uh, Tet Initiative by the uh, Viet Cong in 1968, when there was a major setback to U.S. forces. There was a debate between the military and uh, CIA analysts came up with uh, an estimate of the strength of the Viet Cong, the communist insurgents in Vietnam, which was uh, much greater than the estimates by the military. And the military were caught off guard. So on a number of occasions, uh, one could say that the uh, CIA was offering good advice, which was ignored, and uh, people were just not listening. And then another interesting twist to this is the protest movement against the Vietnam War in the United States. First, President Johnson, and then President Nixon asked the CIA basically to come up with proof that the student protest movement against the war was orchestrated from Hanoi in North, North Vietnam or from Beijing, or from Moscow. But when the CIA concluded its, its investigation of the students' movement, uh, they came up with the conclusion that, in fact, the students were motivated by patriotic reasons. That is, let's get our country out of this uh, unjust and uh, counterproductive war. And what about then the coup in Vietnam, going back to 1963, and then which led to the assassination of Diem, and the, the, the coup then later in Chile, which saw uh, Allende overthrown? What was the involvement of the CIA in, in those? Well, I think in the, case, in the first case, uh, the CIA's role was peripheral. They had uh, plans for a coup, and indeed they had plans for such operations in a number of countries, because by this time... The CIA was a worldwide organization. For example, they had a, a plan to assassinate Patrice Lumumba in the newly independent country of the Congo, but the Belgian special forces got there first. So the CIA had plans, but they weren't directly involved in the Vietnam coup. In the case of the Chile coup, they uh, certainly invested heavily in the destabilization of the Chilean economy and the uh, promotion of right-wing forces in Chile. And of course, uh, the culmination of that was that the dictator, Augusto Pinochet, took over uh, the uh, government of uh, Chile following the coup in 1973. There is some debate as to whether the CIA was directly involved in the assassination of Salvador Allende, who was the democratically elected uh, president of Chile and relented in American circles because of his left-wing leanings. I think that the evidence there is rather murky. 
It's fascinating to read about how intelligence gets politicised and uh, the times when there is that tension between the CIA and politicians and what they're doing. And you see that very clearly in the 1970s with the SALT talks and uh, basically, as you say, the CIA humiliated by the way the politicians are, are using their intelligence and making claims on their behalf. Well, that's right. Um, this is a very uh, interesting case. Uh, Henry Kissinger, who was a national security advisor and then also became Secretary of State, was keen on negotiating with the Soviet Union Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty uh, called uh, SALT. Uh, now, the CIA, in the course of these negotiations, discovered that the Soviets were cheating on past arms uh, agreements with the United States. And uh, especially, they were not allowing verification procedures to take place. That is, verification procedures uh, concerning the observance of the agreement about uh, nuclear and other weapons. Kissinger, however, was unhappy with that intelligence that came from the CIA because he wanted to persuade the Senate to ratify the SOLT agreement. So he suppressed the CIA uh, findings for the reason, in in his view, that uh, there was a greater cause, that is, world peace and uh, detente. So, uh, I mean, you could argue that in terms of relative uh, um, morality, uh, Kissinger had a very good reason for doing that. But it was a, a setback for the status of the CIA. And when Later in the decade, um, conservative Republicans found out what had been going on. They became uh, very distrustful of the CIA. And when SALT II came up for uh, ratification, by this time, President Carter was uh, was president. Uh, there was strong opposition to it on the ground that you couldn't trust the CIA about the reliability of, uh, of, of the Soviet Union. And the Senate never ratified SALT II, although fortunately... Both sides uh, agreed informally to abide by the, the terms of that treaty. Well, we're talking history and we're talking to Professor Rodri Jeffries-Jones about the history of the CIA on this, the 75th anniversary of its founding. We're going to take a very quick break now. When we come back, we'll be exploring more of its history, its successes and its failures. Talking History with Patrick Gagan on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we look at the history of the CIA on this, the 75th anniversary of its founding. And I'm talking to Professor Rodri Jeffries-Jones, whose new book is A Question of Standing, the History of the CIA. Let's talk about the collapse of the Soviet Union then, Rodri, in the 1980s. I wonder, did the CIA predict that successfully and what role they played during that period? Well, the... CIA played an important role in the um, 1980s. This is the period when President Reagan uh, was in office and um, when William Casey was director of the CIA. And uh, if you're interested in the Irish diaspora, you've got uh, two examples there. Now, on the one hand, Reagan wanted, as he put it, to unleash the CIA because he thought that in the previous decade, Liberal reformers in Congress had placed too many shackles on its operations. And that's exactly what he did. 
and he authorised the CIA, for example, to support the Contra movement in Nicaragua, which was trying to overthrow the democratically elected but left-leaning government of, of that country. Now, turning from covert operations to uh, analysis, there was within the CIA an office called SOVA, which is the Office of Soviet uh, Estimates. And the person who set that up was Bob Gates, who was later on the uh, director of the CIA. Now, Reagan was very keen on negotiating arms limitation uh, treaties with with the Soviet Union, as well as being interested in bringing about the downfall in, in, of communism in, uh, in, in Europe. But there, there were hawks in his cabinet who agreed with the latter goal, uh, but not with the former. They thought you just couldn't trust the, uh, the, uh, the Russians to observe any kind of advanced nuclear tre- treaty. Now, Casey, who was director of the uh, CIA, went along with that and... Um, didn't trust the, uh, the Soviet Union, but there were people within the SOVA office who could see that, especially when Gorbachev became the leader in, in Moscow, uh, there was a prospect for better relations. Reagan listened to that uh, calmer advice, and it prevailed in negotiations in Iceland and other venues with the Soviet leaders. And the result was the negotiation of a long-term reduction in uh, nuclear forces, uh, as well as a liberalization of first Russian society, and then it spread to the rest of Europe. And uh, by 1991, you had the fall of communism in the, in the whole of Europe. So the CIA was intimately involved in these procedures, but it was a, a complex story. Predicting the end of the Cold War and exactly when the uh, Soviet Union would collapse and on that point, the CIA did fall short. They were a little bit too uh, pessimistic in their estimates. And Bob Gates, the person I mentioned, when his confirmation hearings came up to be director of the CIA, was uh, well, he endured heavy fire because he'd uh, failed to, to predict exactly when communism would fall. You mentioned the attack on Pearl Harbor and how the United States wanted to make sure it was never uh, caught by surprise like that again. That brings us to 9-11 then in 2001 and and the attack on the Twin Towers. The CIA, as you, as you say, there, there were various warnings coming in and there was various bits of intelligence that were being presented. Was that a, a CIA failure or was it a failure of others to heed the warnings? Well, I think that uh, you can see fa- failures all around in, in the case of 9-11. You, you, the, the metaphor used at the time was jo- joining the dots. There were there a number of dots there, including CIA warnings that an attack, attack was imminent, that it was likely to be a, a, an aerial attack, that the Pentagon was likely to be one of the targets. There were a number of dots like that, but nobody joined them up. And where does the responsibility lie. Well, the CIA was set up as an organization of, um, in, with intrinsic aims, but also was set up to oversee the whole of the intelligence community. So the director of the CIA, until the Reform Act of 2004, 
the director of the CIA was also the director of the entire intelligence community. But unfortunately, to perform a role like that, you need cooperation all around. And notoriously, the CIA was in a a position of rivalry with the FBI, and the FBI did not hand over some crucial uh, evidence. Turning to the CIA itself, it even had uh, messages uh, coming in about the precise uh, location and timing of the attack. I mean, that, that was the missing ingredient. If um, the right people had had that information, they would have been able to take some kind of uh, preemptive action. But these messages came in in um, two languages, in Arabic and in Pashto. Pashto is the language spoken in the eastern part of Afghanistan, and that was where Osama bin Laden was in hiding. Americans, uh, American forces were already looking for him, but he was in hiding there. So by the time they had found, uh, in fact, they, they didn't have a Pashto uh, translator. That is a, quite a, a, a major um, defect in the CIA's organization. And by the time the Ar- Arabic um, speakers had got around to translating uh, messages in Ar- Ar- Arabic, it was just too late. In the aftermath of that, we have the war, uh, the war on terror and uh, the war in Iraq. And there you see the CIA blamed afterwards for uh, the claims of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. But again, we see different analysts having different interpretations and uh, we see uh, analysts being named publicly as a way of damaging them and various scandals and controversy because of the conflicting evidence. Yes, the, the, I think uh, in my mind there's little doubt that uh, the analysts in the uh, in the CIA knew, knew full well that there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. The Bush administration was looking for a casus belli, a, a reason for going to war, and they, um, in, instead of uh, concentrating on the fact that Saddam Hussein, the leader of Iraq, was a, a latter-day Mini Hitler, and it would be a good idea to get rid of him. Instead of fixing on that kind of argument, which they thought would not convince the American public, they wanted to show that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction which were chemical in nature and more seriously uh, atomic weapons. And when the uh, CIA consistently found that uh, this was not the case, it was persuaded, its leadership was persuaded to essentially ignore, ignore the evidence and endorse the finding that the weapons of mass, mass destruction were there to give the administration uh, the, um, the, the green light to go ahead with the invasion with the, with the uh, consent of Congress. So um, it's uh, an example of uh, intelligence to, to please. Uh, the, the director of the CIA at the time, a man called Tenet, Interestingly, had stood up to uh, President Clinton on an earlier occasion in uh, a case involving uh, an Israeli spy called Pollard. And uh, he threatened to resign if Pollard was released back to Israel, having been convicted of spying against the United States. But in this crucial case, where the stakes were very high, he simply lacked the moral courage to stand up for his analysts. And the result was... The American invasion of Iraq with uh, uh, British complicity, of course, uh, and that invasion turned out to be a, a disaster. Uh, 
for Iraq, for the United States, for American foreign policy, for U.S. credibility. This soon emerged because uh, you can't keep these things secret uh, that, that long. Uh, search parties went out in Iraq to look for those fabled weapons of mass destruction and didn't find them. Congressional inquiries took place. And the CIA took the hit. So it had a double hit. First, it was blamed for not predicting 9-11. Second, it was blamed for the fictitious claim that weapons of mass destruction existed uh, in, uh, in Iraq. And that um, was largely the logic behind the Intelligence Reform Act of uh, 2004, which uh, caused the huge loss of uh, prestige and power for the CIA. Yeah, so as you say, the loss of prestige and power and damage damage to its reputation. But then you have the, the successes, including the, the assassination and the death of Osama bin Laden. Was that the high point then of the CIA during this period? It, it was a high point in terms of, of prestige. I think there were other reasons why the uh, CIA re- reached an apex during the Obama administration. Was One was that he um, pointed a very... Uh, able um, director uh, called John Brennan, whose, whose father came from uh, Ireland. So he's quite an Irish influence here. Uh, he was a very able man who in- introduced um, reforms such as uh, a new d- directorship in the CIA, within the CIA, which dealt with digital uh, matters. Um, the CIA also refrained from uh, activities which had been authorized in previous administrations, such as torture and kidnapping, and that improved its standing with um, progressively mi- progressively minded people. And uh, of course, the uh, location of Bin Laden and the organization of a successful uh, expedition to to kill him was uh, quite widely regarded as a success for the CIA because people felt very emotional about the deaths that uh, had occurred. 9-11 caused 2,000 deaths in the, uh, in, in the United States. You have considerable praise for the CIA analysts, and, uh, including at the end where you talk about the role of the analysts in predicting and, and analysing and spotting Russian in- interference in democratic elections in the United States. Uh, talk to us about that. Yes, um, the um, Russian... Uh, the Russian uh, criminologists, the criminologists in the CIA, had uh, really suffered the blow to their um, to their uh, standing in the aftermath of 9/11, because there was a huge emphasis on what one CIA guy described to me as the threat du jour, the very short-term threat, as he saw it, uh, but caused by uh, 9/11, and the CIA was taking its uh, well, as a nation, rather, the United States was. Uh, taking its eye off the ball and not looking at the greater threat, which came from uh, Russia and, and China. But um, what happened um, after the election of Donald Trump, and this is a, an ironic outcome, really, the election of Don, Donald Trump was a wake-up call for the Obama administration, which still had a few weeks to run because the inauguration didn't come until early in the year following the election. And the Obama administration uh, took the opportunity of strengthening the Russianists or criminologists in the CIA in that short period of time. Now, the immediate 
motive for doing so was that they wanted to find out the degree to which the Russians had been interfering in, in the 2016 presidential election, for example, by hacking the emails of Hillary Clinton, the Democratic candidate, and the emails of the um, Democratic um, National uh, Committee. So they wanted to find out about that. But also, they wanted to find out about Russian tactics of cyber warfare, the use of social media to foment dissent in the United States, especially racial uh, discontent. This is really a campaign of dirty tricks being run by Moscow through its surrogate uh, organizations. And once they had set the ball rolling, then it, um, I think, um, opened the possibility for a renewal in the quality of American intelligence on, on Russia. And more recently, with the election of Biden, um, we have had um, William J. Burns selected to lead the uh, CIA, and he is a real expert on, on Russia. There's no question about that. Furthermore, his father was um, a general who, in the presidency of Ronald Reagan, was instrumental in um, uh, helping to obtain uh, a, a rational arms reduction uh, agreement with Russia. I think in Burns, uh, and indeed in President Biden, we have people who certainly recognize what a threat Putin and Russia pose, especially uh, today, of course, in Ukraine. But at the same time, they have uh, a record of taking an intelligent view of the Kremlin, and they will be alert to any possibilities for uh, a more peaceful world, if reasonable terms can be worked out. And a final question, Rodri. How would you assess the legacy then of the CIA on this its 75th anniversary? Uh, is it really, as President Biden has said, the bedrock of American security? Or when you look at the, the mistakes and negative things, bad things that's been involved in around the world, is it a more dubious legacy? I think I'd be uh, inclined to agree with uh, President Biden. Clearly, there have been uh, lots of... Um, shortfalls, mistakes, and and uh, disasters. But I think that um, if one were to pinpoint the greatest achievement of the CIA, it would be its contribution to the survival of mankind, because its estimates of the Soviet Union were always rational and not driven by, for example, military ambition, which you had in the Army, Navy, and uh, Air Force. They were always able to bring calmness and informed opinion to the to the table. And that, uh, I think, continues to be the case, even though the nature of the threats confronted by the United States and its allies have changed over time. OK, well, my thanks to Professor Rodri Jeffries-Jones, Emeritus Professor of American History and Honorary Fellow at the University of Edinburgh, for joining me tonight to talk about the history of the CIA. His new book is A Question of Standing, The History of the CIA, just published this month by Oxford University Press. And Rodri, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Patrick. Well, we'll be back with more Talking History right after the break when we'll be discussing the history of the HIV-AIDS epidemic and how Ireland and other countries in Western Europe responded. That's all coming up right after this. Talking History with Patrick Gagan on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. 
1982, 40 years ago this year, the first AIDS case was diagnosed in Ireland. And to discuss the histories of HIV AIDS in Ireland and Western Europe, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr Janet Weston, Assistant Professor at the Centre for History and Public Health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And she's the co-editor of a new book, Histories of HIV AIDS in Western Europe, New and Regional Perspectives. Janet, you're very welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Can we go back in time 40 years to 1982 and what it was like in in Ireland, in Europe and around the world? Uh, because this, we know, of course, this is an ongoing epidemic. But when it was all new back then, my sense of it and from reading the newspapers of the time is that there was an incredible amount of fear of of fear of the unknown. There was a lot of paranoia and a lot of negativity and hostility. Yes, that's absolutely right. Yes. I mean, it's worth uh, remembering, of course, that to start with, uh, this was completely mystifying. Um, It really took a number of years before anybody um, had got a good grip on, on what AIDS was, on what HIV was. So to start with, it was just mystifying and extremely, extremely frightening, as you say, it appeared to um, have absolutely terrible effects on the individuals um, that had HIV or AIDS, and there appeared to be almost nothing by way of treatment. And to start with, there was very, very little understanding of exactly how it was transmitted. Um, so to an extent, it's very understandable that uh, there was uh, such panic and such fear um, and such a lack of certainty about what to do and how to respond. Looking at these different countries, I wonder, uh, did you come across some countries that handled it better, responded to it better, and some who perhaps um, handled it a lot worse? That's a very interesting question. Um, one thing that's quite striking from from this collection, from looking at Western Europe, Um, is that there's actually quite a lot of similarities um, with the the countries that are featured in the collection in terms of the response. Very, very broadly speaking, um, most countries did rely quite heavily on medical expertise. um, And for all that, uh, a lot of the political rhetoric and the media Uh, uh, language was extremely hostile and unpleasant. A lot of the policies were um, guided by that medical expertise and relied on um, fairly sort of liberal and sort of voluntaristic responses rather than, for example, um, making HIV tests compulsory or anything like that. But then, of course, within um, within Western Europe, there there is a lot of variation as well. And it was often very much sort of guided um, and and affected by things like how different countries wanted to position themselves or how different countries um, perceived themselves. So, for example, places like the Netherlands that uh, very much sort of considered themselves to be um, a very, very tolerant and open nation. They very much sort of prided themselves on involving uh, people from the LGBT community in the response to HIV AIDS. 
there could be um, an element of almost um, complacency and, and self-congratulation um, in terms of the response. And then in other countries like uh, Italy that were um, very much um, dealing with an HIV AIDS epidemic that was caught up with injecting drug use, um, the reactions were guided by their relationship with the United States and the sort of emerging war on drugs. Um, and so reactions in Italy uh, inclined much more towards um, dealing with injecting drug use and related HIV issues through criminalization. Um, so there are lots of really interesting factors at play in, in determining how different countries responded uh, to HIV and AIDS. And what about the Irish response then, looking back at the 1980s and uh, how our country here then uh, dealt with this? Yeah, so the Republic of Ireland was really, really interesting. Um, and I think it's it's touched on in the collection. I think there's loads more interesting work that's going on um, in terms of uh, working on this history. And I hope there'll be lots more coming out soon. The, the HIV AIDS epidemic in the 80s in Ireland was actually quite similar to places like Rome and Edinburgh in that it seemed to be very much about injecting drug use. It was very much connected um, to this sort of huge influx of heroin um, into the cities in the very late 70s and early 80s. And so the, the people that, were, uh, that seemed to be most affected were young people who had been injecting drugs. Um, and the, the impact in, in Dublin in particular um, on those populations was absolutely um, devastating, it was sort of cataclysmic. For this research, I spoke to a number of people who were working in addiction services and probation services and things like that in the 80s. Um, and something that came across really strongly um, was that absolute devastation that sort of swept through particular areas and families as well. There you know, were a lot of stories of, um, you know, five, six children from one family um, dying from AIDS-related illnesses. So it was really um, overwhelming, I think, um, in the 1980s, uh, in, in Dublin in particular. Um, and the sort of official policy response was perhaps a little bit slow compared to other places, although I think very few countries were, you know, very quick off the mark. Um, but sort of thinking about the context, this was um, not long after very heated debates about abortion and about divorce. There was not much political appetite to sort of get embroiled in something else that that touches on um, issues of morality and sexuality and so on. Um, and homosexuality was still illegal in the Republic of Ireland, which of course made it very difficult for any of the uh, sort of self-help and activism groups that were forming to, um, to provide information and support. Um, those kinds of groups couldn't really be officially involved um, in terms of advising policy makers. And to some extent, there was less sort of state involvement in, in health and social care services in general. 
So um, official responses were were a little bit um, a little bit slow to get going. I think. Yeah, it definitely seems to be in contrast to the handling and the response to the to the recent COVID pandemic, because there the sense was we're all in this together. Whereas back uh, with the the HIV AIDS epidemic in the 1980s, it was very much we're not all in this together. There are some that we're blaming for this, or we're there's definitely an other, and uh, that they were the ones who were uh, seen as as the ones to blame or to be responsible. Yes, absolutely. I think in the 80s with HIV AIDS and into the 90s as well, to some extent there was a very strong sense that it would only happen to other people. So to some extent, it was easier to to sort of um, put it out of mind or to, you know, put it um, uh, to one side. Um, I think a lot of countries as well like uh, liked to imagine that it would only happen to other uh, other countries, that somehow HIV wasn't going to cross the borders um, and become a problem for them. Um, and I think there was an element of that with COVID as well. I think it is a recurring theme um, in the history of uh, infectious disease that there is a very strong tendency to to sort of, uh, you know, put the head in the sand a little bit and uh, imagine that it's not going to come. It's not going to arrive. It's not going to um, to affect uh, whoever the politicians or the policymakers are. For all that there may well be a lot of experts, as I know there were with COVID, um, warning that something like this could happen. Um, it's a very real possibility that everyone should prepare for. And of course, you know, infectious uh, diseases are no respecters of um, national borders at all. So, You've done some excellent work on prisons and how uh, prisons responded to uh, this epidemic. Uh, what was it like in Irish prisons? So the the situation in Irish prisons was incredibly interesting and it's something, again, that came across very, very powerfully um, in some of the interviews that I carried out with people that were working in prisons, um, that the prison service at the time was, um, was pretty sort of small and isolated. Um, it was only just in the 80s starting to... Um, face up to a fairly severe problem of overcrowding, which had never been an issue before. Um, And it was absolutely not prepared for HIV AIDS at all. There was uh, pretty much, I would say, no medical um, expertise within the prison service for anybody to draw on. And so when in 1985, um, the first prisoners um, at Mountjoy in Dublin requested an HIV test, um, there was uh, no thought given to what would happen when the results of those tests came back. Um, and this, again, is one of those sort of very powerful memories that lots of people who were there at the time uh, remember very, very strongly that when the first person um, received their results um, in late 85 and were told that they were HIV positive, there was something approaching panic, absolute panic. As we were saying earlier, there was still a lot of um, uncertainty amongst sort of non-experts about uh, how HIV was was transmitted. Um, And they were um, pretty swiftly and unceremoniously released from prison. Um, And obviously that set a difficult precedent, shall we say, um, 
but obviously being very suddenly released from prison gives a, a pretty strong indication um, that that it's huge. It's it's really significant. Um, it did uh, indicate to to the rest of the the prison uh, staff and prison population um, that this might be, uh, you know, the policy position that anybody who tested positive for HIV would just be released. So it's not totally surprising that there were then very large numbers of requests for um, HIV tests. And, you know, I don't think anybody um, was really thinking through um, the ramifications. And so when it transpired that about 10% of the prison population um, were testing positive for HIV, um, the, it, releasing everybody was not going to be a sustainable option. And so um, a decision was very hastily taken to set up a separate part of the prison uh, for people who were known to have HIV or AIDS. Um, but it was not an unusual response in prisons around Europe. What was really unusual, I think, in, in the Republic of Ireland was that that separate unit um, survived uh, well into the 90s through to the mid 90s. Um, it proved to be incredibly difficult. The longer it was in place, that that practice of segregation, the harder it was to to step back from because it sends such a strong message that people with HIV uh, can't be uh, can't sort of live alongside other people, that there's something extremely unsafe about them. Um, that means that they have to be separate. And over time, there were also um, advantages in a way to being in that segregation unit because there was a specialist doctor who would come and see people. There were more specialist services um, around addiction treatment available. And there were small perks as well with things like um, 7-Up. Um, one person remembers very strongly being freely available to anybody who's in that um, separation unit and not at all available um, to the main population. So it became very hard to um, to reintegrate um, that group. And it created a, a very problematic, I think, false sense of security because it gave the impression that everybody um, who had HIV or indeed any kind of bloodborne um, infection was in the separation unit and anybody who wasn't in the separation unit um, did not have a bloodborne infection. And of course, that that wasn't necessarily the case. Um, not everybody was being tested. Um, so it was um, it, it was, uh, I think, a, a sort of a snap decision that had very um, unfortunate long term uh, consequences. And extraordinary to think that a small number were released and uh, released and abandoned uh, in that first wave. Yes, yes. I think um, from speaking to um, people who were working uh, in probation and addiction services at around that time, there, there were very few sort of formal services set up. Um, I mean, for, for anybody struggling with addiction, let alone for anybody um, newly diagnosed with HIV. Um, so there was almost nothing uh, formal that could be signposted. Um, but I think there was also just um, uh, very little uh, sort of uh, thought or attention given to what the the impact was going to be on that individual, and of course on their on their loved ones as well, on their um, their families and friends. And I think for a lot of people, it was very difficult 
um, to to return to any kind of normal life with that very shocking um, news having just been imparted. Um, and of course, this was a good while before there were any uh, meaningful treatments that could be offered. The book also looks at how uh, European HIV AIDS archive has been built up and it's really interesting to see how different memories, histories have been collected and curated. Yes, and this is a really uh, a really exciting thing that's going on at the moment, I think. There is um, a, a huge resurgence of interest in the history of HIV and AIDS, which I think predated our, our current uh, pandemics, but... Um, I think, you know, COVID and in fact, monkeypox and so on is sort of um, uh, maintaining interest uh, in the history of of medicine and health. Um, And as part of that sort of resurgence of interest in this history, um, there's been a lot of uh, projects to gather oral histories from all sorts of people um, who were involved or affected in one way or another. the European HIV AIDS archive that's mentioned in the edited collection is a really wonderful example of this because it works to bring together um, uh, people who were involved from all across um, Europe and people, of course, who moved around um, internationally as part of their activism or their professional um, activities in relation to HIV and AIDS. So it, it helps to paint that um, international uh, picture of of activism and of networking and um, the the movement of people and ideas at that very frightening time. Um, and there's also a lot of interesting work going on to try to um, uh, gather up uh, ephemera, um, you know, things like um, uh, board games or children's books, um, you know, books aiming to teach children about HIV and AIDS or um, placards, protest um, leaflets and things like that um, to try to to sort of salvage this kind of material archive um, before it all ends up in a skip somewhere. And I think an awful lot of it probably has already. Um, so the more that can be um Uh, saved and the more oral history interviews that can be generated uh, while there's still time, the better. Okay. well, my thanks to Dr. Janet Weston of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and the co-editor of the new book, Histories of HIV AIDS in Western Europe, New and Regional Perspectives, only published last Monday. Uh, Janet, my thanks for joining me tonight. Thank you very much for having me. And that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan and Peter Malloy on sound. Some great new shows coming up in the weeks ahead, including a show on the life and legacy of Michael Collins on this, the centenary of his death. So join us next week and in the weeks ahead. We've been Talking History. Good night. <laughs>